Silicon Valley features the third highest GDP per capita in the world. It's home to many of the planet's largest technology companies, and it boasts a startup culture that is the envy of every other economy. In the same way that the industrial innovations of Rockefeller and Carnegie defined America's transition into the 20th century, Silicon Valley's tech supremacy has shaped the world's transition into the 21st century. To explore the rise of Silicon Valley and how its ascent shaped America and the world over the past 70 years, I'm delighted to be joined by Margaret O'Mara, professor of history at the University of Washington, where she writes and teaches about U.S. politics, the growth of the technology sector, and the connection between the two. Prior to her academic career, she worked in the Clinton White House and served as a contributing researcher at Brookings Institution. Most recently, she's the author of The Code, Silicon Valley and the Remaking of America. Margaret, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. The listeners always love when I read, so I'm, <laughs> so I'm going to read just a few sentences from one of your early uh, chapters called Endless Frontier. As tempting as it might be to read history backward, however, the San Francisco Bay Area was not unique. In the furiously industrious early decades of the 20th century, you could find similar little clusters of young entrepreneurs in cities across the continent. High-tech products blossomed everywhere. Automobiles in Detroit, biplanes in Dayton, cameras in Rochester, light bulbs in Cleveland, radios in New York. Military installations dotted the landscape too, yet Northern California quickly pulled away from and ultimately surpassed all the competition. The region did so because of the extraordinary opportunity flowing its way in the 1950s and because of extraordinary people who took advantage of that opportunity. So let's start with that. What caused that extraordinary opportunity that happened in Northern California? The Cold War, the military-industrial complex, the great growth not only in military spending on R&D and building up defense and building up the nuclear program, but, but, a, but a particular, a new thing that the government got in the business of doing after, during and after World War II, which was financing basic scientific research and development and technological research and development and research into computer technology, digital technology, transistors, electronics of all kinds. The electronics industry was one of the fastest growing, biggest industries in the United States in the 1950s. It was mostly based on the East Coast, big companies, IBM, RCA, Sylvania. But what happens in Northern California in this sleepy little valley that was just an agricultural valley is that more and more of these electronics firms start opening labs right in the middle of it. Why did this revolution not happen in New York State you yeah. know, with, with, with IBM? Why there so, in California? In, so the Santa Clara Valley, what later becomes known as Silicon Valley, was just like another, it was a fruit-growing region. It was most famous for apricots and prunes, and it, that, that's what was going on. But it had one thing that no other uh, valley in California had. It had Stanford University. Now, Stanford at the time, the 40s, early 50s, was not the Harvard of the West. It was not the world-class top-ranked institution that it later became. It was pretty good. Um, it had ambitions to be greater. And like I wrote in the book, the there was incredible opportunity that flowed California's way because of the westward tilt of military spending. So much of the Cold War military spending and, and research activity went on west of the Mississippi. And California was getting a great, a great deal of that money. But there in, at Stanford, there was not only this university, but the administrators of Stanford, and particularly one guy, Fred Terman, who was the dean of engineering, later becomes provost, sees what's what's about to happen and says, let's remake Stanford so that it is a it becomes a perfect receptacle for this new money, <laughs> that we're ready, that we are a, a true Cold War university. 
Stanford does what it can do because it's a private institution and has a lot of flexibility in its mission to kind of be entrepreneurial in this way. So he's it's very distinctive. It's different from a lot of other colleges and universities, particularly public ones. Builds up physics, builds up electrical engineering, creates labs that are uh, really building programs around the most cutting-edge electronics trans, uh, technology, including transistor technology. The transistors invented, Bell Labs. Again, all these things kind of start on the East Coast, and then the West Coast becomes the place where they blossom. Transistors invented in 1949. Less than a decade later, one of the inventors of that transistor, William Shockley, who conveniently happened to be from Palo Alto, came back home to start his his uh, his startup company, Shockley Semiconductor, which was the first silicon semiconductor manufacturer in the Valley. And off to the races we go. So how much, let's just start with the, the, the military spending. How much of that was, you know, just part of a wonderfully detailed plan created in Washington, D.C., where they figured out these were the specific promising areas and let's direct the money into those areas. Like, what, what Was this a master plan masterfully executed? Oh, heck no. <laughs> of course not. Now, this is now, and this is key to understanding the role the military industrial complex played. This is not just a story of big government comes in and giant research labs and command and control, right? Look, it's the 50s. Ike Eisenhower is president. Is Eisenhower a fan of big government? No, he is not. Is the whole point of the Cold War to, you know, for American, you know, free enterprise and American capitalist yes. democracy yes, to you. triumph over Beautiful. socialism? <laughs> yes. So how is the how does the military industrial complex grows? It grows indirectly. The money flows to private defense contractors like Lockheed, which opens its missiles and space division in Sunnyvale in 1954, becomes the biggest employer in the valley until the late 80s. This is a whole, you know, there's a defense industry that's just and because pretty much everything they were doing was top secret. They, you know, they couldn't go on the cover of Fortune magazine and be like, "Look at the cool stuff we're making." Okay. It was, you know, it was, it was, it was defense work. Uh, it flows to uh, universities like Stanford, like Berkeley. Uh, it's it's going indirectly, and so this indirect flow of money is creating a foundation not only for research on blue sky technologies that had no commercial market, but also creating a customer for these blue sky technologies. This goes into overdrive in the 60s with the space race. So John Kennedy, you know, says we're going to reach the moon by the end of the 1960s. Five years earlier, four years earlier, Sputnik had rocketed into space and set everyone's hair on fire back here in Washington. And and all this money is flowing into, you know, how do you get a man to the moon? You need very light, very powerful electronic devices. You need transistorized technology. And that is what the Northern California and the Santa Clara Valley is specializing in. Really small, light, powerful devices, transistors, microchips, integrated circuits, then microprocessors, and communications devices. That's what it's in the business stuff from the very beginning, and that sets it apart. Right. Because obviously the you know the reputation of Silicon Valley is that it's a it's a hotbed of entrepreneurs. It's sort of American capitalism done right. Yes. If you want the most perfect example of capitalism done perfectly, that's Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. But there's obviously there's this other side of the story where you had sort of this confluence of things you mentioned: the Cold War, mm-hmm. a, a private university with an open-minded leadership that really could see what's happening around them. The space race was also also part of the Cold War. So all these things sort of came together in sort of happenstance. Mm-hmm. Is that? Yes, it, it, but again, there are sort of individuals who are who are kind of 
who are in place who are taking advantage of that opportunity. Um, I talk a lot about Fred Terman in the early part of the book. I also talk about Dave Packard, you know, co-founder of Hewlett Packard, one of the pioneers of the of of the Valley. You know, they've kind of the first Valley startup. And uh, uh, but you know, Packard, Dave Packard was also very engaged in politics throughout his life. He was um, a really important supporter and donor to at the state and local level Repu- Republicans in Northern California. He serves as Richard Nixon's deputy secretary of defense. Uh, kind of comes in and part of his his mission is to you know run run DOD more like a business although that wasn't quite the the phraseology but you know he was and he was it was so funny there was all this when he was appointed there was all this worry about you know he's so wealthy and what's he gonna and he put everything in a in a trust and he like accepted a salary of a dollar a year and um, so there's this kind of connection you know just to this sort of the thing about the one of the things I wanted to show and I think that when you look at this longer history of the valley and this this connection between government and entrepreneurship continues throughout the whole history and particular entrepreneurs really being engaged with policymakers and creating a you know a good metaphor would be kind of a sandbox where you know a great container for entrepreneurs to kind of throw sand at each other and build castles <laughs> but there's this the, the that american society and american the american state it, particularly during the cold war is is creating this opportunity The story of Silicon Valley kind of forces us to hold two contradictory ideas at the same time. The the story of the Valley is not just, hey, the government built it all. Stop thinking you built your own iPhone. All the technology in here is, you know, came from from some DOD, you know, origins. You don't want to you don't want to overstate the case of government involvement. That it did play a very critical role. But the government was very much involved as a as a customer, as a catalyst, as a kind of de facto seed investor, venture capitalist at an early stage when there was again no commercial market for this stuff. It was super expensive, you know, things were, you know, had mechanical innards, not digital ones. But also the story of the valley is one of entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. It is one of these, you know, the the people that the famous names that we all know who were extraordinary business leaders. It was funny when I started this project, I said to myself, I'm not going to write about Steve Jobs because everyone writes about Steve Jobs. This is going to be about the other guys and and the hidden, the people we don't talk enough about, talk about the VCs and the lawyers and the marketers and the people who, who helped it all go. I ended up writing a lot about Steve Jobs <laughs> yeah. because there's a right. reason he's so important. So being able to say, hey, here's American society. Here's the way that 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 this is American history, the larger spread of American political history and cultural history and tech history. And these things are intertwined. And entrepreneurs are enabled by the way that government money flowed. It flowed in a way that shoved a lot of resources in one direction and then kind of got out of the way. Like you said, it's not a master plan. Dwight Eisenhower didn't sit behind his desk and say, I shall build a science city. Right. But yet. I believe in the Soviet Union they did. <laughs> they so, did. So, right. And they're calling and them science city. Exactly. Right. So, to, to, you right. know, why there's a reason he wasn't saying that. But also it goes with the sort of the temperament of American government, American federalism. The public-private partnership is not an invention of the of the most recent era of modern politics. It's something you can see going throughout the 20th century, even at times when the government was very big. So, um, just to play a bit of alternate history, which I'm, yeah. I don't know if historians love, <laughs> love doing that or they like hate doing that because it, it depends. <laughs> um, so, no Cold War. What you know? What is what are the what is the American? What does the electronics industry look like today? Was there some other path? To this, uh, you know, smartphone in my mm-hmm. pocket, yeah. Than than the Cold War, which 
it may have resulted in all this good stuff, but you know, it, you could also look at it as sort of a huge waste of resources that, that end up with you know a smartphone in my pocket. So, what was was there another way of this could have come about? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, sure, there was a consumer electronics industry before the Cold War, before World War II. Um, it was East Coast based. It was it was like you know you think RCA, you think you know, and there was a, a nascent computer industry. Although the digital all digital computer gets its is a, a creature of World War II. You know, it gets its Public, um, public financing and military defense financing is really behind so much of the advances in computing. Um, when you, t- you know, but it's it's true. What the what the Cold War does is it creates this just <laughs> tsunami of money, and and it wasn't because um, America loved science, even though its leaders were saying high flying things about it. It was for these very geopolitical strategy. It was competing. You know, the Soviets have more scientists than us. We are going to pour money into science education in order to compete. Um, in order to have such mobilization around this massive effort, you do probably need some geopolitical catalyst. It's hard to just have it purely commercial. I mean, I would, I mean, I would like to believe that there is some other path forward than, mm-hmm. than a sense of urgency about yeah. we're going to you know, lose the tech war to China yeah. or, or somebody else. And I, I, think, I think some people, certainly not all, but I think some people, when they look at the issue, issue like climate change, they view that sort of war, but sort of a war against a different kind of threat. And that, that's the kind of thing that can sort of catalyze people and government and resources and doing these big things. Uh, they may very well believe that you know climate change is a pressing issue, but they also think it serves that other purpose that before uh, the Cold War served, maybe mm-hmm. now it's climate change. And the reason I sort of bring this up is I listen to someone like Peter Thiel mm-hmm. talk about technology and what Silicon Valley is doing mm-hmm. and not doing, and he'll talk about you know China and that there's almost this like thank goodness for China, thank goodness <laughs> for, the, for you know that that we're in this you know new geopolitical conflict because that will then force government and give government the sense of urgency to start investing more in basic research mm-hmm. and science and protecting our intellectual property and all that sort of thing. So I the I mean so no cold war do we again so we, do we end up with a smartphone 10 years later, 10 years earlier or it's I don't think it would be earlier. Yeah. I mean, I think it's hard to imagine, you know, but but yeah, there's I think it doesn't necessarily have to be a geopolitical um you know strategic um, competitive emergency it could be, or it could be something that's an economic, you know, economic competition. It can be, you know, climate and alternative, you know, the finding another, you know, alternative to fossil fuels, and and, um, but again, there has to be some kind of bipartisan sense of urgency uh, and that's mission. That's the tricky part now is the bipartisan. It is. Sort of, it is. Everyone feared the Soviet Union. Yeah. But there's a real, you know, I think the thing is funny. This Silicon Valley's politics, Silicon Valley is now very closely identified as, you know, in the tank with, for Democrats. Right. You know, it's been very strongly um, uh, kind of on. And, and what I trace in the book is kind of how and why that happened, how how Bill Clinton and Al Gore as, as centrist Democrats trying to reinvent the Democratic Party were really courting Silicon Valley leaders who pre- previously had been um, when they had been, you know, vocally p- political, they were, they were Republicans. But they were Republicans of a, a more fiscally, fiscally conservative Maybe not socially liberal. I mean, they were, but they were, they were conservatives. And uh, but they also, you you hear, you know, you read what um, people like Dave Packard and Bob Noyce, the co-founder of Intel, who was an uh, advisor to Reagan, uh, someone who was very, worked very closely with the Reagan administration on uh, 
trade with the, they, at that point the semiconductor industry was um, uh, f- facing very stiff competition from Japan. Uh, so that was uh, sort of a defining struggle of the 80s for the chip makers. But th- these are these are folks who again and again they were not again like like Eisenhower and Reagan, not big fans of big government, but also were consistently saying the U.S. must invest in research. There are things that private industry is never going to expend money on these kind of these things that don't have any near go to market right. value that, you know, spending money on moonshots, whatever it is, metaphorical right. or real, mm-hmm. is kind of something only the government can do. And also, quite frankly, you shouldn't have individual companies or individual philanthropists kind of setting the terms of, I think this is more important than that. Um, there's, you know, that's what, there are things that governments do. So recognizing that there there has been this, even among people who have been simultaneously saying, hey, please, you know, don't regulate us. Don't, you know, keep our taxes low. Make sure that you don't kill the goose that's laying the golden eggs if, the, you know, the, right. the, in, in tech and, and, and high-tech VC. They're at the same time saying, but you got to invest in education. You got to invest in research. You've got to invest in these fundamentals because private industry is not going to do it. We're we're busy making money, which is what they should do. And 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 so th- I think th- that's I think where this history is instructive, just to remind again, there, these have been interconnected and having a kind of uh, that this this antipathy towards government that the valley has had, and you know, kind of like. Uh, you know, it's all just, it doesn't have anything to do with it. If they can just stay as far away as possible, it'll be good. So, so, I mean, so when you see things like, you know, uh, if you have big tech companies trying to do, you know, work at the Pentagon on the yeah. contracts and some of the workers aren't so happy about that, that that's that really sort of rejects the history of an industry which has worked very close to mm-hmm. the government, including including the military. And indeed, the industry wouldn't be recognizable in its current form yeah. without that mil- military uh, relationship. Yeah. So what happened there? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a classic example of, you know, this is where, you know, knowing the history is useful. Um, I mean, it's a history of a long relationship with the Pentagon. It's also a long history of technologists protesting against that, right? So I think part of you know, the really interesting thing, I think this is what, you know, this is a great thing about that this is why it's an only an American story. It's a story of, you know, democratic capitalism and the ability for people to protest what their government is doing. Thank you for using that phrase, democratic capitalism. <laughs> that excites me when people say that. Excellent. It's a, it's a, I'm channeling my inner Eisenhower for you. People's capitalism. Right. Um, uh, but, it, it, you know, that is, again, when we're thinking about the, you know, U.S. v. China in the tech race, that's, I think that those, you know, political systems matter a heck of a lot. But, yeah, so Google is a great example of, you know, kind of embodying these contradictions. And this is not to say, look, these workers, I think it's really interesting that workers are, you know, standing up and protesting. Like, this is this is novel. The mm-hmm. White-collar tech workers generally don't say boo to a goose when it comes to what their companies are doing. They're like, it's all good. I'm playing ping pong, right? <laughs> um, and now they're questioning it. But, you know, Google is a company that, you know, the, the original search engine that was developed by uh, Larry Page and Sergey Brin as grad students at, at Stanford, that was financed partly by a grant from DARPA, the Pentagon's research agency. Is also for, that was DARPA, NASA, and NSF, and but there was some defense money like that seeded it. That actually DARPA has been uh, the major funder for academic computer science 
for most of you know academic computer science's existence since the late 60s, um, partially because uh, the military budgets have stayed intact and grown over time, even as other parts of the discretionary U.S. budget has shrunk and NSF and other research agencies have not had as much money to throw around. It's been an incredibly important partner, and DARPA is... Um, is a true blue sky, you know, they're giving money with the eye that, okay, the military down the road might have some use for this. But they're also putting money in the hands and saying, oh, autonomous vehicles, right, go for sure, rock on, you know, like, example, right. like th- something that is decades away from being commercializable or uh, something that the military could possibly use. So here you have a, a company that is, and from the get-go is like, don't, don't be evil, where, you know, uh, all of our values are, are you know, the kind of apolitical and um, and and now now they're doing defense work and the people inside the company are like this is this is not what we're about you know like actually there's this connective tissue um, I think you know now there's what's happened now is that so much of the technical expertise that used to be also distributed across biz- industry and government is now concentrated in industry you know all Facebook and Google got all the data scientists, right? They can pay everyone more. So there's this huge imbalance. And now the Pentagon and the national security agencies, they have to go to these companies like Amazon and Microsoft and and Google to – to be able to build the best tech and to not have this disjunct. But, you know, why do you want good tech? You want to have, you know, drones that are more precise in their target. I mean, it, it it's the military. It's right. war. It's the business of war. And, um, you and, have to be sat, you have to be willing to. Yeah. These advances will yeah. help military kill people more efficiently. It is. It, yeah. And, and, uh, but you know, the, the companies of today are the, are the children and grandchildren of the Vietnam era, um, entrepreneurs who who grew up in, you know, hey, they were exposed to computing because they were going to Berkeley and Stanford and going to these government-funded labs, computer labs, and realizing this is amazing. They see these computers and they're like, this is, you know, the establishment should not have all the computing power. We're going to make it personal. We're going to create these devices. We're going to take this and, and build computers of our own that are apart from this military-industrial business, you know, every corporate. Every, and so these companies have, you know, sort of their whole understanding of what they're about is antithetical to the to government and bureaucracies of all kinds. It's and it's so far removed from the defense establishment that was that's gave us its seed capital and has continued to be part of the whole story throughout its history. I would guess that uh, if this ends up in the hands of a policymaker, uh, while they while they may be very interested in the history and the fantastic stories you tell, they would also kind of look at this as is this kind of like a recipe book? I think it is. Right. Yeah. So so if I'm looking at this as a recipe book and I'm and I'm wondering I'm I'm a governor of a st- of a state uh, that's not California and boy I would love to have a Silicon Valley in my state. Mm-hmm. What what is there a recipe or or another country that another said we country. would love to create uh, you know a Silicon Valley here? Are there is there a recipe in here that can be used, or or is it or is such there's so many one-off factors and a confluence of things that it's sort of an unrepeatable miracle mm-hmm. that we got Silicon Valley. Well, Silicon Valley in all its particulars is an unrepeatable miracle, just like Renaissance Florence is an unrepeatable miracle, right? But there are some basic, yeah. There's a recipe there. There's a recipe for state involvement, government, public sector involvement. That is a kind of the on the model of throw a lot of money in its direction and get out of the way model, right? right. Create the sandbox. Create an incredible container with a lot of resources within it, and allow creative people to play around in the sand and see what it develops. Now, and this is something that other 
nation states, other geographies had to have a hard time. It, it's kind of incompatible with political traditions in other places where, and, and it's also, you know, you have these huge billion, many, many billions of dollars spent on beautiful research parks and, you know, innovation, this, that, and the other. And, and then, the, but the government doesn't quite get out of the way enough. Um, and it hasn't allowed kind of the free movement of people and capital. You know, that's, you hear this again and again from Silicon Valley entrepreneurs, free movement of people and capital. And, and I'll talk about the people in a minute because that's another part of the recipe. The, the, the capital part, oftentimes when, the, you know, you business leaders talk about it, it's talking about private capital, right? And that's for sure. Venture capital, like allowing incentives for this sort of investment, which I think perhaps overcorrected for these days in terms of it's, you know, people who are making money for making, for making money, uh, for managing money. Uh, but uh, that creating this, but there's actually a, a free a movement of capital that's public capital, the flow of public investment in the right spot that becomes a catalyst for private sector entrepreneurship that is sort of broadly beneficial to a broader public and a broader market. Uh, the free, the, the other part of the recipe is the people recipe, um, and immigration. It, immigration is a big part of that. Um, you know, a, a, a piece of my book talks about the 1965 Hart Seller Act, which I, I think is interesting as a political historian. I think it's super interesting. It's this, it's a classic example of a piece of legislation that its its creators were like, oh, this isn't going to make a big. This is just. It was sort of crossing the T's and dotting the I's on the civil rights movement. It was da Lyndon Johnson downplays it as as he signs it, and because um, it's removing the quotas that had been in place since the 20s that had been directed against Eastern European, Southern European immigrants, you know, coming in and you know being too un-American. And what it does is it opens up the immigration system to, in the case of Silicon Valley, a whole bunch of immigrants, particularly from East and South Asia, who by the 80s, one third of the companies being founded in the Valley in the 80s are founded by people who are born in either India or China. And then there are other immigrants in part, uh, on top of that. So immigrants and refugees, including not only educated ones, not only the Albert Einsteins, um, but also someone like Andy Grove, who later becomes uh, CEO of Intel, who comes in the country in the 40s All as right, a teenage refugee yeah. from Hungary. And I'm sure the immigration officer who encountered him at the border was like, who's this geeky kid who doesn't speak English, you know? I mean, you well, just can't. You he's going to be tell. a drain on the system. Drain on the system, <laughs> public. You know, uh, but th I mean, that's a really and and that's a history we need to. It, it's it's there's a chilling effect now that's already being felt in tech because of you know the conversation about what to do about immigration and this is, um, and and tech leaders are attentive to it. I think they're attentive to things that have to do with their workforce, like H one B visas and that sort of thing. I think I would encourage tech leaders to actually think more deeply about the Andy Groves um, because there's a human potential argument when you think about the long range and policymakers think about the Andy Groves. It, you know, that's there's that 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 there's a there's an ROI there that we might be missing if you want to put it in kind of blunt economic terms. Um, and and that was part of that's part of the formula. Um, uh, before I get into uh, just a bit of a negative bit and seeing how people look at Silicon Valley today. Just get, like, what, what, what is one of the great stories of Silicon Valley that people sort of don't know? Maybe it's a hero. Maybe it's a villain. <laughs> well, <laughs> we, you can, we can try that. But like, what don't people know? Like, you know, we, we know we, you said you didn't want the whole book to be about um, uh, Steve Jobs. You know, that's yeah. obviously it's a fantastic, interesting story. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, or, the, or the rise of the iPhone or, or Jeff Bezos. Yeah. Are there any stories uh, that maybe are a little bit well uh, less well known? Less well known. Oh, that's I could I have a lot. Um, 
you know, one one group of people that isn't like a, a unknown, but something that that don't really get put front and center enough, I think, in the longer history, are venture capitalists and who they were over time. Like when we think of VCs now, sometimes there's a you know, I the, the VC industry and the the investment community in, in tech is very different than it than it than it was originally. But originally. The thing that I discovered um, about the the very first uh, generation of, of of VCs, first they were they came from industry. They were engineers, and then they they were operators, or, or and they were in companies, and then they came and went and invested in companies. They weren't rich, and 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 almost none of them had their own personal wealth initially. In fact, so many of the young men who came to the valley in the fifties and the sixties. They came to Silicon Valley because they didn't have family connections. They didn't go to Ivy League schools or prep schools. These were kids from small towns in Iowa, from um, you know middle class families in Houston that went to Rice University because the tuition was free. They went to they got scholarships to MIT. They were super smart at engineering, and that's pretty much that. And their work ethic was all they had going for them. And they came out to California. Because that, that was such a risky move. I mean, how crazy to go to Palo Alto in 1957 when you could stay in, you know, Armonk, New York or Rochester or... All the places their parents probably told them, go there. Go there. That's a safe job. <laughs> right. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Like, that's you're, you're nuts. You know, you have, a jo- you have a job offer at GE and you're leaving to go work at this startup and, you know... Are you going to go be a California? farmer out there? Like, <laughs> what, what, why? What right. And so they came and, and so mm-hmm. being able to move out and... And when you move, you know, across the country and you're remaking your own community, you you, f- you form these really, really close ties. Um, and so I, I think the ties, understanding the relationship between entrepreneur and investor and, and this symbiotic relationship and how oftentimes they're people of personal and professional connections, you know, this is part of why – this is part of the go juice. This is why, why it works generation after generation. You have the winners of one generation picking the winners of the next and using, you know, what they've learned from operating – other companies to mentor new entrepreneurs. It also is part of why Silicon Valley has had a, you know, gender diversity problem, has a, and also more broadly has a problem kind of looking out beyond the kind of Northern California worldview of, hey, this is a really great product and this is going to do this. And well, you know what, this does this with a bunch of college students at elite colleges in the United States. When you take it to um, Housewives in Myanmar, it has a very different. Right, for sure. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah. so there's, you know, but, and I think that is one of the challenges to the the bigger question of who gets to be an entrepreneur, who gets to be part of this tech um, ecosystem is part of what makes it so successful is its insularity and it's this networked connections over generations. But that's part of its weakness and not bringing new voices and new people in. I want to read you a quote from, I think, a Wall Street Journal op-ed by uh, Senator Josh Hawley uh, of Missouri. He was writing about, really, I think, how, how Silicon Valley and the American technology industry has let down America. Just, just a couple sentences. There was a time when innovation meant something grand and technology meant something hopeful, when we dreamed of going to the stars and beyond, of curing diseases and creating new ways to travel and make things. Those are the dreams that fuel the American future. Those are the dreams we need to dream again. Uh, and part of what he's saying is that Silicon Valley isn't dreaming dreams like Mm-mm. that. What he's giving, what they're giving us is, you know, maybe at best scooters uh, to get us around <laughs> town. Uh, at worst, uh, social media that is, you know, addicting our kids and having terrible effects in developing countries and biasing. So how fair is that criticism of Silicon Valley? I mean, you just wrote a whole book on Silicon yeah. Valley. 
what so what is the state of Silicon Valley, and can we still rely on Silicon Valley to do the big things the that big will things. change that will change our lives? Yeah. Yeah, that um, it, it, the, the senator's uh, words remind me of Peter Thiel's remark a few years ago. We were promised flying cars, sure. and all we got was 140 characters. Uh, I, I think the 140 characters <laughs> are still pretty important. I think <laughs> they're physics-defying flying cars. Yes, yeah, the, point the, the point taken. And, and uh, you know, I think, yes, we that Silicon Valley does need to dream big, but America needs to dream big. Mm-hmm. And part of the, you know, the history of Silicon Valley has not been simply these people doing it by themselves, even though the brilliance of the Valley is that, you know, they they believed they did it by themselves, right? Right. I mean, that's part of the magic, right? (laughs) Right. Like belief in entrepreneurial and belief in inventiveness and ingenuity and and the brilliance of, of individual business leaders and technologists. But it, this is an America problem, an America dreaming problem. This is a, you know, um, Dwight Eisenhower behind the desk. This is John Kennedy, you know, shoot the moon. This is Ronald Reagan, you know, declaring that the, you know, the American revolution is, uh, you know, on a tiny microchip. It, you know, this is not just Silicon Valley alone. Silicon Valley alone is not going to dream big. They are profit making companies and they're making a heck of a lot of money doing what they're doing now. And to ask, you know, a, a company that is accountable to shareholders and, you know, quarterly earnings calls to say, okay, you guys, moonshot's on you, and then be disappointed if the moonshot is kind of not quite hitting the moon right. or something else or is is not benefiting. Ever. I mean, there's a question of who benefits from, you know, the technology. There's been incredible benefits that have come from the technologies we use. Look, we we all have a love-hate relationship with our smartphones. But they're undeniable things, you know, that this access to information and the communication and the connectivity that it is allowed and the mobility, um, there have been a lot of upsides. But it can't just be Silicon Valley. We can't just say, okay, guys, fix it. And, and that's it is, and and that's a, it's harder to all do it together. <laughs> and we're not we've not been very good at dreaming big lately, um, as a country, but we're going to need to. You started writing this book four or five years ago. Five years ago. Five years ago, and I think people viewed certainly politicians viewed the technology industry very differently. These were the crown jewels of the economy, our national champion. Uh, Michelle Obama was having doing art things with Google at the White House. So it's very, very <laughs> different. So uh, very different now. So did that change how you wrote this book at all? Did you go back and or did you write things you were anticipating writing, take angles and hit themes mm-hmm. you were anticipating? How did that change? No, I wrote the same book I planned to write, but the world that it was released into was, I think, maybe more receptive mm-hmm. to it. <laughs> I, you know, I wanted to write a book that wasn't a build up tech or tear it down. I wanted something that really showed, just explain to people that where they could get the backstory, right? Not with an agenda, not with a here's where it should go. Um, although I am a, you know, I'm a, look, I got into the history business because I'm an, I'm an optimist. I'm a believer in America. I think there's an extraordinary you know, it's a it's a history with a lot of dark spots and extraordinary things that have happened despite that. Mm-hmm. And and um, 
and so when I started, yeah, everything was up and to the right. The first early interviews I did, I got a lot of pushback when I said, well, I really want to talk also not only about the entrepreneurs of the Valley, but also about government and policy and the role that it played and how entrepreneurs helped shape that, because that's another part of the story, how venture capitalists and executives went to, came to Washington to, um, you know, lobby for lower capital gains taxes, for example, things that really, you know, were, were really important catalysts to the growth of the industry. Um, and and I got so much pushback from people like, well, that's there's no government part of the story. Like you're gonna, you know, not there's no book there. Like what what story do you have to tell? And um and and now I find myself like everyone's so you know this is terrible. You know, burn it all down. And couldn't and, we have stopped the rise. I know. Yeah, like have stopped it in the fifties. Yes, was that a missed yes. opportunity? Like, make it go away. And then I find myself being like, hey, guys, supercomputer in your pocket. Like, isn't this cool? And and um, that I'm, you know, gee whiz, right. <laughs> cheerleading for the technology. Because the pendulum needs to swing. You know, we're going to swing back to the middle. Right. We're going we're gonna to get over this this bump. Um, and what I, but I, what I appreciated, I went into the book saying, I want to write a book that explains how Silicon Valley came to be, why it became the juggernaut it did, why other Silicon Valleys haven't you know and what's the formula like how how do you do it i by the time i finished the book i said i said it's answering those questions but also it's explaining how we got to the big five you know apple amazon alphabet facebook and and microsoft uh because these are the products that everyone uses every day even if you try not to you can't escape them right and and uh they're powering our software driven world and so I thought it was really important not just to show the history of the companies themselves, but also how the companies are building on this longer history. How when Facebook, when Mark Zuckerberg talks about connecting the world in, a, in very optimistic terms, and up until quite recently, a lot of other people, including po- political leaders of both parties, were sharing that optimistic framing. He's building on many decades of technologists saying, if we put a computer on every desk and we wire them together and we communicate by computer, we're going to forget that our, our gender differences, ethnic differences, all the inequalities right. of, of the world will melt away because we're going to be in a chat room. Right. Right. I know that sounds kind of silly now, but but that optimism about technology that's fueled it, you know, these companies do, they're the product of that history, whether they know it or not. My guest today has been Professor Margaret O'Mara, author of The Code, Silicon Valley and the Remaking of America. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. City sky comes down like